This is Design Matters with Debbie Milner from designobserver.com. On this episode, Debbie talks to designer, illustrator, and art director Kate Morose about her early success, her projects, and the importance of over-delivering. It's part of our business model to do that. It can set you apart from someone else who will do literally the bare minimum. The interview was conducted in front of a live audience at the headquarters of Shutterstock in New York City in September of 2017. Here's Debbie. Kate, I watched your Design in Daba video, and um, you started by talking about what a shitty year you were having. Yes. How are you feeling now? I mean, I think I can imagine that most other people in this room have had quite shitty years also. Everyone's nodding. So aside from the rest of the world um, imploding, um, yeah, I, I personally had quite a difficult year um, in... In January, I fell over and broke my hand, this hand. The hand you... The hand, my right hand, which is my dominant hand. Um, and I think, you know, you joke when you're, when you use, especially if you draw, oh, like, lol, do you insure your hands or something? But it genuinely, like, can impact your career if you can stop using your hands. And I have lost quite a bit of... Um, ability in my hand. Do you think it'll come back? Um, I'm not sure, but thankfully, due to like digital tools, I'm able to continue doing what I do. If I had to work with manual materials, like actual pens, not whack on pens, I think I would be struggling a lot more. But because you can like adjust the way technology responds to your like haptic feedback, I've managed to kind of carry on working and I was actually working on a huge illustration project um, right in the middle of that. But um, yeah, that started. So you were walking your dogs and yeah. you fell. Yeah, I just slipped and I, I got what's called a boxer's spiral fracture in my um, fourth metacarpal. So I like just, you know, it wasn't fun. I tore a ligament in my non-dominant hand about five or six years ago. And it was one of the most excruciating experiences. Uh, the first time I had to dress myself, I cried because it's really, really hard to put on Spanx with one hand. <laughs> really hard. Luckily, I um, don't feel the need for Spanx. <laughs> I like a more kind of loose-fitting attire. Um, but no, I, uh, it definitely it stopped me in my tracks. But I had an operation. I luckily... I actually in return for my hand therapist's immediate work of getting me into a surgeon, because of our healthcare system, various other problems, I was put back by a couple of weeks and it was really distressing. Um, I designed her a logo for her hand therapy charity. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of trade and currency. Very enterprising. Of course. <laughs> just, you know, just as a thank you, because I was, in, I was in, under the knife within 48 hours of, of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the fall. So, no, it was, it was a lot, but... I'm, I'm happy to say it's you better. better, yeah. And you're having a better year now that we're nearly three quarters through it? Yeah. I also went through a point where I was like, I don't care about money or success anymore. I'm just going to, like, do low-key stuff. And that lasted a few months. Do you think that you were feeling that way because you have money and success? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I have got parts of those things. But... 
often I kind of pendulum between these two things, and I think that's natural to kind of push away from something and then and then swing back to it. So we had like quite a, f a year of a lot of philanthropy and like working with organizations and, and then we also doing big corporate work too and just constantly going between those two things. And I enjoy that. I think it's a healthy dynamic to have. You, you said you like to live your life in the middle. So yeah. it's a bit of the yeah. swinging back and forth between the binaries. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Now you consider yourself non-binary. Yeah. Have you always felt that way? I think so. I mean, I think gender is such a hot topic at the moment um, for good and for bad, um, especially in our industry. I think it's come through my experience of meeting more types of people. Um, I learn more about myself um, as well as about other people. And I think I just discovered a whole new world that I didn't really know about, but also identified with. So what world is that? Well, it's the gender non-conforming world or a world where you can exist and not conform to whatever society says you should conform to, which I think lots of people will identify with, whether they consider themselves as a specific gender or not. Um, I just think it's exciting um, to push back against what you think is the truth or what you're told is the way and discover things for yourself. And I had always done that my whole life and luckily I was like created, a space was created for me and my family and in my education system that I could be who I, who I felt I was, but only as an adult now in my, you know, 30, I don't even know how old I am, 31, I think. Um, I've just discovered this other part of myself and, and I think visibility is important. So that's why I talk about it because I found out about what non-binary was through hearing other people talk about it. So I'm going to carry on the cliche of that thing, yeah. What pronouns do you like to use? I use any pronoun, but I use she pronouns because I, um, I don't care about pronouns. That's not part of my gender dysphoria or anything. Pronouns don't, like I haven't changed my name. I, have, I don't change my pronouns. I, it's other things like I don't like being cl classified as a woman. That's the thing that I messaged you about on Twitter. I just, I don't know. Everyone's identity is different. And I think that's why people are kind of confused about it because it's confusing. <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's like, I just like to choose my own adventure. And that happens to be you know, identifying as a queer, non-binary person with any pronoun, with my name, which is a gendered name. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is an adventure, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, what Kate is referring to is I was trying to promote our talk and thought it was quite interesting to compare the color palettes of our attire um, because this is what I always wear and that's sort of what she always wears. So I wrote... Interesting, a woman that wears all black interviewing a woman that wears all color should be interesting. And, and I, didn't, I didn't like it or retweet it. <laughs> so I felt obliged to send you a message to oh, just say something. Oh, I didn't even something. notice, yeah. So, but it, no, you're right. I mean, there is that assumption. Yeah, that, we and, all make and them I, every and day. And I fall into that. 
Um, I don't present as a gay woman, so most people don't know that I'm a gay woman. Yeah. And so somebody will say something like, oh, she doesn't look gay. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so. absolutely. I think that's so part of it. And only now, as I've gotten older, I feel like I have the vocabulary to talk about it. Not that I didn't w feel comfortable talking about it before. Like, if you listen to talks of me talking, like, five or six years ago, I would say, like, hey, I'm Kate. Like, I'm not really a girl, but I'm not really a boy. Like, I used to say that kind of thing. I always talked about gender, but I didn't really know the lingo. Um, and... Yeah, and now I think it's fun and, I, and exciting and it's massively a part of my identity and um, who I am. So I'm, I'm happy to sort of talk about it and I'm happy to just tell people straight to their face, explain something that they might ask me a question about. It doesn't bother me in any way. And I'm sorry for those assumptions. Oh, it's like, it's <laughs> fine. I think, I think in design, I, there's another thing that I always get quoted on because Angus pulled it out of a talk I did with Marina where people are like, I'm not a woman in design. I fucking hate that. Mm. It's like so gross. It's I like, am I'm a woman in design and I hate it. Yeah, right? I, you're a designer. Like, that's your job. It's like, you, it, it's, I just find, I found, I find that so even more problematic. But yeah, I, uh, what do you find problematic about it? The, the sort of tokenism? Yeah. The separatism? Tokenism, 100%. And I'm regularly a token and I'm told it to my face. Like, it's not something that's kept secret. It's like, oh, we invited you because we need more women. I'm like, cool. <laughs> like, I don't identify Ooh. with being a woman, so I guess I'm even more of a token now. Yeah. I'm like the non-binary token. Like, they're gonna like, they're like, oh, our diversity figures, or like, here are our gender breakdowns. It's like, we have 50-50 and a non-binary person. <laughs> I don't know. Um, checking a lot yeah, of boxes checking all there. The, all the boxes. But no, it's definitely the tokenism and the pa it's patronizing um, and it devalues, it separates, it, it classifies people within a skill set when they shouldn't be being classified. They're just that skill set. That's their profession. We don't say like that about other things. So we shouldn't say that yeah. at all. We should just let people do their jobs. Right. Yeah. Introducing people as vegans or paleo yeah. is just not part of the conversation. No, and exactly. That's also choice, right? Yeah, and I think um, I understand why it happens. And I get invited to talk at women-only events. And I understand the need to have spaces for certain conversations. Um, and that's unfortunate that it happens. But I'm definitely an advocate for all genders um, and for the equality of all genders, irregardless of the binary. Well, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Is it? Yes. There's a lot to discuss. Um, so I read that by the time you were five years old, your mother was so exhausted by the constant necessity to keep you entertained, she hired art students to come to the house to distract you. This is a true story. <laughs> so tell us about that. Um, my mother is very smart and she realized that hiring babysitters that just put the TV on was not enough. So she would, how, I don't know how, but she would find young people to babysit me who were interested in art or creative things and they would come and do various bits and pieces with me. So and had you already been interested in doing creative things? I understand that you were making things, you referred to, what you referred to as sticking junk together and pretending it was something else. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what we all do? <laughs> I used to make perfume. I used to go oh, and wow. get 
rose petals Cute. and talcum powder and I would squish everything together and I'd make this weird little paste and then I'd add water and yeah. That sounds pretty good. It was really fun, but it was kind of goopy. Yeah. Yeah, like wallpaper paste. Exactly. That smelled good. Pink. Pink, smelly <laughs> wallpaper paste. Right. I have, I'm a quite an insatiable person, I think. I always got through a lot and always needed a project. I still do. I can't do nothing. So I think that's just what my mum picked out. And she, she's a creative person. She's not like necessarily a creator, but she was always doing things like that. And, you know, it's like the classic American Idol thing. I've been singing since I was a child. Like, I've been drawing. Who didn't fucking draw when they were five? I mean, you know, everyone. Um, but, but yeah. your mother told you that if you wanted to be an artist, you had to draw all the time, mm. and that you must always carry a sketchbook with you. First of all, your mother sounds awesome. She is. She is awesome. But I don't draw all the time or carry a sketchbook. And I'm not an artist either, so I guess that makes sense. What do you consider yourself? Designer. I definitely don't consider myself an artist. I've always felt a bit... Like, it was almost like the same as the woman thing. Like, I, like when someone calls you an artist, you're a bit like... Ugh. That's like, like I, how I, I always feel like it's sort of pretentious. It's somehow. very pretentious. <laughs> but, you know, don't get me wrong. I have lots of friends who are artists, and I don't consider them pretentious. Um, but, you know, uh, just not... I don't choose it for myself right. as, as something I would call myself. Music is a very big part of your background, your childhood, and you grew up listening to and coming up with dance routines mm -hmm. for um, the Spice Girls, Say You'll Be There. Yes. And you've written about how it might seem embarrassing to yes. admit that you used to spend your time dancing around to the Spice Girls and homemade polystyrene platform trainers. True story. Um, and that, but that this merchandise product of girl power was hugely influential to you. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I think in, in that context, I was like too late for Riot Girl and like post-punk and DIY kind of empowered music. So being a child of, you know, I was born in 86, so being a child of the, of the 90s, I, the closest we were gonna get to that was the Spice Girls, if I'm honest, over in London. So yeah, it was huge. It was my everything. For Do like, you still um, remember the routine? Oh no, I cannot dance, and I uh, don't. I I don't. I was posh spice, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I I got to make the platform. You and Victoria Beckham. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we're so alike. Um, I got to make the platform trainers, but I didn't get to wear them. I was, you know, I was a costume designer, but Vicky B always wore a black dress. Ew. Just the idea of wearing a black dress and heels right now. Would, we should swap outfits. We should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that would work. Well, I'm not wearing heels, but everything. No, else but the would, black dress is frilly. very nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, a little it's nice. <laughs> You've said that one of the big moments in your life occurred when you were seven. You went to Jewish summer camp. So did I. Oh wow. Yes. That's amazing. Happy New Year, by the way. Oh, Tonight yes. is Rosh Hashanah. Yes. So we both went to Jewish summer camp at seven years old. How did that impact you? My impact was quite different, I'm certain. Did you have a bad experience? Not really a bad experience, just an unusual experience that I doubt was... We, we went to summer camp because my mother and father were fighting so much, they wanted us out of the house. I think that might have been the same. Oh. <laughs> I mean, maybe... 
I think everyone wants to get rid of their kids for a period of time at some point in their, especially when they have three. I mean, there's three of us. We all went to summer camp. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like we live in our lives, especially as young children, going to school. And, and a lot of our social activity is around school. And, and even if we do outside of school things, often it's the same ages we associate with and, and the same kinds of people maybe. Mm -hmm. So going to a camp where you're with lots of different types of people, albeit within a cultural group like Jewish kids. Um, was it Orthodox, conservative, no, it or liberal? Reform? Liberal, okay, which I is like, Orthodox. okay, liberal is like not recognized as Judaism um, by other right. Jew Jewish sectors. But for me, it wasn't really, I, I learned how to play the guitar. I like, we did wide games and puzzles and you know it was just it was just an opportunity to be to find another part of your identity that I don't think you get within academic structures um where in a very like visceral and expressive way where you can just meet loads of kids who are older and younger and you you're you do a lot of leadership and you that's I think really fundamental like learning how to lead and teach when you're 14 or 12 and you're responsible for seven-year-olds or whatever, I feel like that was a really valuable experience. I was really struck by a story, I believe um, you wrote about it in your book, um, Make Your Own Luck, about you at one point sitting on a toilet and looking at your hands. Yeah. And I love that story. Do you have a? Do you have the same story? I have a different story, okay. but a similar story, I think. Yeah. So for the room, because that sounds really strange to yes. everyone. <laughs> I will clarify. Um, and for our listeners. Yes, um, <laughs> and for everyone at home who's like, "What the hell is going on?" Um, so, I I'm assuming other people had the same feeling because it's a very philosophical feeling. I think I used to when I used to go for a pee and I'd sit down and it was usually in between like extensive hours of playing with Doll's House or Barbies or something um, and I would sit there and I'd look at my hands and I would go I can do or be anything I want and it was this really existential moment where I could like I realized I was in control of my own body and like it was so exciting it was like an out-of-body experience, but as a young child. And that, I was like, fucking trippy. And it was so cool, because I would be like, I'm gonna leave the bathroom, and I'm gonna play with my toys. And like, that was like, that was like as, as far as I would get, but like, still, still just that feeling of knowing yourself, and like that excitement of what your potential is, is something that I wish everyone could feel all the time. And obviously that gets pushed away and squashed as you get older. But I still feel like it's there somewhere in the back of my mind. And I treasure it. It's a very valuable feeling to have, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the toilet hands story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good story. It, it is. Did anyone else ever have, yeah, that feeling? Every day, yes. You do. It's a wow. It's I've epic. been hoping to get back to that feeling Take that I drugs. had one time yeah. in the summer between second and third grade. I was walking. It was the end of the summer, so it was August, and the light was changing, and it was getting light earlier. 
and I realized I was going into third grade. And I felt proud of myself. That's so great. I've never felt that way before about anything since as powerfully as I did that moment. Yeah, I think it's it's a very innocent feeling because it's not based on other people's judgment. It's right. very personal. Right. Um, so it's great to have connected with it once or twice or sometime in your life because I think then you know that what it is and you can maybe recognize it again. Yeah. It was pure. Yeah, it's pure, exactly, yeah. It's very, it's almost emotional just talking yeah, about it, yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to feel that way about yourself just because of something you're experiencing in your life mm. is is really a gift, I think. Yeah, like just playing with your doll's house. Yeah. <laughs> and I Proud used to, I used to, because we didn't have Christmas, my doll's house had Christmas, so that was like how I dealt with, you know, like, you know, like in like every, every like crime show they, when they deal with kids who have involved in crime, they use like a doll's house to like help people deal with it. It's genuinely how I dealt with my entire childhood through my doll's house. So we didn't have Christmas and obviously everyone else at school had Christmas. So I was very upset that I didn't get hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of presents every Christmas. So I used to like have Christmas for the dolls and I used to like wrap, wrap presents in quality, in like sweet chocolate wrappers and they would have them in their tree. And my mom has this story that she, she has two stories about um, Christianity that she tells me is one when I came down and I said why don't we have Christmas and everyone else has Christmas and she was like because we're Jewish honey and that's what we believe and I and I was quite and silent and went away and that's when I decided that my dolls would have Christmas instead and that was how I dealt with that and the other one was when we went to a wedding and the priest was saying Lord Jesus Christ and I asked my mum why he was swearing yeah <laughs> Because that's, that's what. Because growing up in a Jewish household, you know nothing. So when someone says Jesus Christ, that's when they stub their toe or something. So I thought it was just <laughs> effing and blinding. <laughs> I I didn't understand the notion of Santa, and cause because I, it's ridiculous. But but when I was little, so we had some people come over that were not Jewish during Christmas time, and they were staying with us. And I thought because these. Christian people were staying in our house. Santa might come. That's great. Did he? <laughs> I remember laying in That's my bed so listening, cute. listening for the for the reindeer steps on my room oh. thinking Santa might come. That's Santa so might cute. come. I love that. Ah <laughs> oh, man. It's um it's always good I think growing up living a slightly different life to the other people in my community definitely gave me a different perspective. Yes. And I think it's always healthy to have other perspectives but I definitely missed out on those gifts. Well, you've written about <laughs> how school was an incredibly mm. formative time for you and that your art teachers introduced you to Apple computers when you were 12 mm. and that they would order the latest design software and you'd be the first to use it. I mean, I think order might be a bit of a stretch. I think they illegally downloaded the latest software and gave it to me. Cool. Um, <laughs> like under the table, here's a... Here's a D DVD of Dreamweaver like slipped under the table. Um, yeah, it was. I was really lucky to have an amazing um, art department at school, which wasn't focused purely on paint and clay. It was digital. Was very much a part of of my design education. But you were the designer of the school magazine. Mm -hmm. You illustrated the cover of the yearbook. Yep. You decorated the sets for the school plays and volunteered to do the bubble writing on school posters. I didn't have a lot of friends. 
<laughs> but that sounds pretty analog, actually. Oh yeah, I mean, I was in, I was using Quark. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Me too. At like, at like 14 and 15. Yeah, I, was I was using it at 40. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was quite analog um, because it was relatively analog. Like we could scan images and adjust them in Photoshop but, and use Quark, but everything was black and white with a spot color, maybe. Yeah, I feel, I feel awful for being so retro about everything. Um, but yeah, it was... I had a bit of trouble at school because I had a teacher who told me to sit down and give other people a chance. Now, you reported that person to yeah, the headmistress. And I did. They got, I like, think he got in trouble. Um, now, that wasn't Mr. Hunter. No, Mr. Okay, Hunter's... We'll talk about that. Oh, my gosh. She's done her research. <laughs> no, um, that was someone else who I will not be named. Okay, so he got in trouble for doing yeah. that. And, but Mr. Hunter from South Hampstead High School was really important to you. Yeah, he... Um, he, I think it's important for people to have positive experiences in education and we, the impact of that is huge to people's futures, obviously. And he was just an art teacher that realized I had some enthusiasm in, I built my end of year project in Flash and it was like a interactive essay. Like he just really knew that I was into it and I used to spend all my time learning and we've, we've stayed in touch. Um, Oh, he must be so proud. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe he was glad to be see the back of me. I must have been a really annoying student. You you say that you were a geek yeah. when you were in school. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? I say I was a SWAT, which is kind of different to a geek. What's a SWAT? A SWAT is like someone that sucks up to the teacher. Oh, you were the teacher's pet. I was the teacher's pet. So a geek is like someone that like knows things and like, in-depth knowledge about stuff. I'm not like that at all. I don't know much in... I like. I, I had another teacher at, at university who told me something which I now do the opposite of. Which was? He said depth, not span. He was an art... It was, it was a pretentious art school. Um, so, which is great advice, but I also like always like to do the opposite of... Or yeah, think I, about the opposite of yeah. other people. And I was like, why can't I do span, like what's wrong with you know, being a generalist, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I was told I had to pick one thing. Pick one and thing, I and I hate that advice. That. It's really, I think it can be really damaging um, to people and what helping them decide on what they want by telling them they have to decide what they want, you know? Um, so yeah. But you said you've not book smart, that you're more of a practical mm. learner. Mm. Yeah. But it seems like you're able to teach yourself things through books. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say books exclusively, but through asking questions and seeking out answers. Now, you first thought you would be an illustrator. Mm. So you then very quickly broadened your reach when you realized you didn't just have to pick one. Yeah, I uh, sort of fell into illustration. Um, how? How, did, how does one fall <laughs> into illustration? By drawing pictures, <laughs> I mean that. I mean that's a really annoying answer, but that's the truth. I just drew pictures for trade. So for a ticket to a show, because I was I was into kind of the music scene in the UK, or in exchange for something small, or I don't know. It was kind of a currency I used to 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 kind of negotiate my community and my peers. I would draw people's portraits and they would then tag me on their MySpace pages. It was all very 
social media, but early, early days, yeah. And you were doing quite a lot of freelance in college and yeah. in your book, Make Your Own Luck, you offered this advice. And I think this is, this is great advice just in general for life. You say, complete your coursework as best you can. If you can add extra outcomes to a project, do it, even if it is not required. If you're asked to design a poster, do a series. If the brief is to develop a brand identity, sketch out a website and a set of stationery to complement your work. Do you practice this as well in your life now? I think it's a bit out of date. Really? Yeah. Well, just like... I mean, just over-delivering. Yeah, I don't oh, mean... Yeah. <laughs> I just mean those deliverables. That's the problem with books, right? They, like, don't age. So I talk about sketching out some stationery. Like, you know, really, who cares about stationery? I mean, lots of designers. Um, <laughs> I love that you can ask and answer your same question. Yeah, because everyone's <laughs> thinking it. Like, yeah, I've definitely designed a letterhead. How many of those have actually been printed? That are, you know, most of the time it's a mock-up, but you know, anyway, by the by. I but think it's over-delivering, that always sense of over -delivering. doing more yeah, than you ask. It can give you a huge advantage, let's say, and you have to make good judgment on how much you do, but it's part of our business model to do that. And that can be a problem sometimes because the client can expect more than what they ask for every time. And sometimes the resources are not necessarily there. And so it can be hard to sustain that. Yeah, and it can be. But I think in the right places with the right judgment, it can set you apart from someone else who will do literally the bare minimum. I even had a meeting today with a client who was like, when we ask you to do something, you do it, and then you do more. And then when we ask other people to do something, say for the same pitch or brief, they'll do just what is required and no more and maybe even less than what is required. Um, Why do you think they do that? Why, I mean, I've never understood that. I'm, I'm always over-delivering. I'm always trying to do more. Mostly, not because I want to over-deliver, but mostly because I just don't ever think it's enough. Sure. Or I'm enough or it's good enough. Or I think it's because so many people can get involved with something that there isn't anyone who is given authorship or ownership of, of a project so that people don't care anymore. And I think caring and authorship and ownership are so important in design that if you take that power away from someone, whether it's a colleague, like somebody I employ or, or a collaborator or something, they all do as little as they can to get through because they don't care because you've taken away their powers, if you like. So that's a big part of it, I think. And that is a big, it's a, it's a problem in our industry designed by jury or whatever, when you don't have that relationship with the work or with the client or with the process, so you just don't give and you don't care and therefore you'll do the thing you're asked to do because that's the contract and then nothing else. And then generally very little happens after that. Yeah, and um, people become very um, out of love with what they do, which is a big problem, I think. In 2006, you made your first zine titled Draw Together. You made 30 copies and gave them out. Um, the first 10 came with a badge. You apparently had a badge machine. I still have it. And you were actually thinking about starting a badge-making company. So, like, such DIY dreams, you know? Like, I just wanted to be in a punk band, and I wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I always had weird... I've bought a lot of technology in my time thinking it will turn into something, and it never has. Badge I think I, machines are critical, though. I know. And, like, look how trendy they are now. 
Um, no, I think uh, I just liked making things and designing things. And a lot of the time, um, tools I, I sort of bought were so that I could design more. And it was a really backwards way of trying to be a designer, like trying to provide a service that meant I could design. But yeah, I did, I made some badges and I, you know, we whip it out for people's birthdays and make badges with their faces on and stuff, which can be quite cute. So it's not no. gone to waste, the badge machine. <laughs> I'd actually love to come to your studio and oh, see Oh, yeah, that. please come. Absolutely. We'll all wear a badge with your face on it. Awesome. I guarantee you. Awesome. Back in 2007, during your second year in college, you won the big Cadbury's dairy milk campaign. How did that happen? I mean, this was a huge thing, a huge billboard, mm. huge identity, one of the biggest brands in the world. I don't really know. I kind of, sometimes when a job comes along and I'm like, where has this job come from? But I, you were in college. Yeah, I was like 21 maybe. Um, I had been drawings and had my work in a few magazines and I'd done some editorial. I was just putting my work out there all the time. I had a website, I probably had a couple websites and an art buyer contacted me. I was actually in New York. I was walking down Spring, and I had a Blackberry, because I was a baller. Um, I was walking down Spring, and I remember getting an email on my Blackberry, and, uh, which is kind of like insane, because it was so long ago, but I like, kind of wanted to be like that guy, you know? Um, and I, I just remember getting it and reading it and being like, wow, this could be cool. And I didn't know about the, the process that you go through to get a job with a big ad, ad agency or anything. Um, so I remember just sending some photos from my phone of drawings I did at the airport. Like, it was so shonky. Like, I don't know how I got the job. But in the end, the art buyer from Fallon, he, like, came to my apartment, my, stu my student apartment <laughs> was it a dorm I, no no it wasn't a dorm <laughs> Can you imagine? but like still it was like I had a, actually I had a studio in my in my house like I turned one of my rooms into a study and it was like fully operational and yeah he, he came he, he was like explained everything and I I got the job and I learned how to use illustrator properly and learned about pantone color okay you know I threw myself into a very deep chocolate pool of money and contracts and it was scary but um i i i really enjoyed it it, it was it's what set me on my way and they but all over the, the uk and i read that the icing on the cake for you is when a massive billboard with your design was erected right outside the university again i didn't have many friends <laughs> you but you said it was a bit grotesque it was but at least they started your professors started to take you more seriously why didn't your professors take you seriously? Because at art school, we were taught that commercial design is not design. Everything you do should be with a purpose. Image making is bad. Um, and is that still taught? I don't know. Is it still taught? Maybe, maybe not. Well, there's I a don't lot know. of Americans here, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like in, in, my, in my education, it might be changing, but the teachers didn't really understand what I wanted to do or who I wanted to be. I think they felt like they'd like to push people in a more fine art direction. And that really wasn't for me. You were paid 30,000 pounds for that job. Yeah. 
and you use that money to launch a vinyl-only record label, yeah. Isomorph Records. What yeah. made you decide to do that with all that money? Well, firstly, I'm sure it's the same here, but when you get paid it, large amounts of money, you have to give a lot of it back to the government. Yes. So what better to do than invest that money, so lose it all, basically, <laughs> by starting a record <laughs> label? Um, well, I really wanted to be a designer, so I was like, how do I be a designer when everyone thinks I'm an illustrator? It's still a problem. I really? Mean, yeah, like, I still am my biography from 10 years ago, you know? Like, I'll get introduced as Kate Morose that designed a poster for Cabri and did a collection for Topshop in 2006. Like, literally, that is still how I'm identified in articles and stuff online. And I've had really hard, tried to fight really hard for being a generalist or multidisciplinary person because that's really who I am. I love design, I love filmmaking, I love animation, I love illustration, but I'm not just one thing. So yeah, that's kind of why I think my school weren't really feeling what I was up to at the time. You created five records with five artists over five years. And this required way more than design skills. Mm -hmm. You had to learn about manufacturing, distribution. Um, and with each release, you collaborated really closely with the artists in order to create a really, I guess, definitive representation of their sound. And in 2008, you were named number 18 in the New Music Express's Future 50 Innovators, Driving Music Forward. Yeah. Number 18. <laughs> no, it was, it was funny because I was on the shoot because a band that I had signed to the label were like number 10 or something. Um, so I was just there. And the photo of me in the magazine is me holding a belt because I was just helping them with their styling on the, on the shoot. So they just took a photo of me and then shoved me in the magazine. Yeah, I, I really wanted to design records. That's something I wanted to do. So... No one was hiring me to do that, so I hired myself, essentially. That was why I created the label. Um, I still kind of forget that it happened. Well, you closed it up. Why yeah. did you close it up? I don't know if you know how much you know about the music industry, but it's essentially a black hole for money and time and enthusiasm. <laughs> so the 30,000 pounds just went into that Yeah, hole. I wouldn't say like I, I burned it like in a pile exclusively on just creating vinyl, but... Um, I started getting paid to do that kind of work, which is kind of what I'd set myself up to do. So so you just invested it in yourself. Yeah, really. I invested in exactly that. I invested in myself and music that I cared about, and I, re I, I, I learned a lot in those five years about how important it is to have relationships with musicians that you're working with, and maybe some relationships are better than others, but, you know really understanding your client intimately and as a, almost like as a friend, how important and valuable that can be towards design. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot during that process. You then got this big project from Topshop and at that point, suddenly everyone wanted a piece of you. A tiny bit. You were featured in glossy magazines, design magazines, newspapers, and I read that you felt at that point that your reputation was running away from you. Yeah, again, it was like... I feel that in the media, you can be kind of stuck in a moment in time. And I felt a little bit like that. 
I was just a kid, you know? Like, I didn't really know what I wanted to be or do. And I know this sounds very, like, privileged because I was obviously, like, having an element of success. But at the same time, I didn't really want to be that person. So I stepped back. You went, came to New York for yeah, a while. Yeah, I came to New York. I didn't... I skipped my graduation. I came to New York here for three months and just kept my head down. And um, I kind of... It's very easy to get caught up in... in Social climbing isn't the right word, but, like, seeing yourself in a way that's unhealthy, if, if that's the best way of putting it. And, like, as a 20-odd person, I really could... I felt myself getting away from myself. I didn't want to be that person. It, it was really strange time. Like, people were even offering me TV presenting jobs. Like, you know, it was, just, it was just weird. Like, it wasn't real. It wasn't about design, and it was about something else, and that something else I felt uncomfortable with, so I, I pushed away from it. That's pretty remarkable. I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people about what they want with their lives and what they think they want. And I ask a lot of kids what they want to be when they grow up. I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by people's hopes. And a lot of people now say famous. Yeah, I, I always said as a kid, I don't want to be famous. I want to be well known. And I guess that's what I continued to live by is like fame is nothing. Like it's not real. Being well known for what you do is different, and I just felt like that was. I'm not. I, I was nowhere near being famous by any means, and I. Well, would, you were certainly quite was, successful at a very young age. I in was a very, very hard. I was industry. in. I was in. I was in a flash in a moment of time that people kind of. I was everywhere, you know, and that can be also people can be like, oh, gross. Like I don't want to see that anymore, and also that was scary. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my choice. And then I came back and ever since I've kind of lived, I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but I have lived under the radar um, in my like loud clothes and voice. Talk about working with One Direction. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that was an amazing project. Um, I Did was, you really paint the stage by yourself because it was the wrong color blue? It please, was, yeah, it was yellow and it was the lines didn't match up, and yes, I did paint it myself. So, Lee Lodge, who is a legend, um, he's a kind of creative director, creative producer, team maker, um, he works in TV and music. He called my agent and, and said that he was looking for someone to work with the boys on a tour. So, I met with their management, and I, I eventually, I was actually here in, in New York on a trip, and they flew me over to Houston, and I went and see, saw the existing tour, and developed like a kind of creative relationship with the band and, and the managers, and they literally just let me do whatever I wanted. Awesome. So, I'm not going to say no to that opportunity to like express myself on a level that is unimaginable, you know? with a really fun and great team of people. And I got to fly all over the world and, and, and have some amazing times, including painting the stage. Because one half the stage was made in the US and the other half was made in the UK. And they Why? Were... <sighs> Don't ask. <laughs> it just I was. was and I'm like, yeah, how did yeah. that happen? And um, yeah, they flew them both there to Australia. The first show was in Sydney. And they built it all out and then... When it was down, I was like, this is an inch out. And it was, someone had measured from the wrong point or whatever, whatever it was. But I was just on the stage. And it was black on the stage, no lights, because we were in a, an outdoor stadium. And I had a little light. And like, Niall comes past. And he's like, all right, Kate. 
I'm like, yeah, just painting the stage on my own. One o'clock in the morning. But, um, and he didn't offer to help. He did, he did offer to help. Of course I didn't take it. It was probably, you know, a virtue. You know, it was just like, yeah, can I give you a hand? Yeah, I'm yeah, good, no, I'm, I'm all right, good. I'm good. I'm good, I'm good. I'll just keep going. Um, no, they're lovely. And, and um, it was a great experience. And I learned so much. I got to do something I thought I'd never do. I, I worked on one of the biggest tours in the world. So I'm, I, I loved every minute of it. And you've worked uh, quite extensively with Jesse Ware. Yeah. Jesse was like my first kind of pop star that I worked with. And she, she was amazing. I met her in a, in a cafe, which I actually then rebranded that cafe, weirdly, a few years later. Things come around in circles. And yeah, she said to me, I want to look like an expensive box of chocolates. That's what I want my brand to be. And I was like, you are the best client ever because you actually know what you want. And then we worked on her first album together. And, and, and sadly, you know, even if you develop like a good friendship with an artist, you can't guarantee if you can continue working with them. So I, ha I didn't work on the second or, or third record, but we, we're still friends. And um, I'm Even really, though you misspelled her name in the presentation. Even though I did Jessie without an I in my foot. Yeah, always check. It still happens. Because obviously, like, a huge proportion of my team are dyslexic. So there are typos flying all over the place. Like the client, like we have, we have done it again since then. I did not learn <laughs> my lesson, um, but now we check the artist name is spelled correctly when we send presentations out. Yeah. Last year you did two extraordinary projects. You worked on the MTV Music Video Awards and you also did an extraordinary installation for Refinery29. Yeah. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the, the VMAs were here in, in Midtown at, the, at Madison Square Garden. And that was also an enormous contract for me and, and my studio. I flew my whole studio here. I know. Yeah, it was, it was, I did all the, the broadcast design, which is like a new area that we work a lot in. I, I really enjoy. It was really, really good fun. And then the Refinery29 project, they had quite a specific idea of what they wanted to create. And they just kind of, we kind of collaborated a little bit. But it was really, in a way, it was really their vision. And I kind of brought my, my part to it. Well, but you did 29 rooms. Can you tell people? What? I didn't do all of them. Oh, you did thankfully. one of them? I just oh. did one. Well, with you, you know, I would have expected you <laughs> I mean, I know. Why and, didn't they ask right? me to do all of them? I would have totally risen to the occasion. Absolutely. No, I just did one. Um... Uh, but it was the Pride Room, which is obviously something that's important to me. So I think it was one of the most Instagrammed rooms in the event. Now, after all of this extraordinary work that you've been doing for the last 10 years, you've stated that you don't conform to what most people think of what a graphic designer should be. Mm. What do you think most people think a graphic designer should be? I don't want to say that because then I'm then saying, you know... Uh, that I, what I think is... The prisoner's yeah, dilemma. Yeah, that, exactly. But... Um, Why don't you think you conform? I mean, aside from non-conformity in, in yeah, apart presentation. Yeah, from that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like there is a stereotype, let's say, of what a designer is or how they should work. I don't mean in terms of, like, my... In terms of my style or my creative output. I mean in terms of my approach. Okay. Um, in terms of how I talk to my clients, in terms of how I approach um, or how I express my opinion. I feel like there is this idea that designers 
are the authority or they feel like they know better than anyone else and I don't and I never want to feel like I'm that person and I never want to encourage people to think they know better than everyone else. I'm more of a listener and a collaborator than I am an, like, I like to take away all the pedestals and the, and the smoke and the mirrors out of this industry and make it much more real and just about people making things together. You're in a position now where you can pick the projects that you want to work on versus what you feel obliged to do. Mm. Have you always been that way? I think so. Um, I think I've never felt obliged. I mean, occasionally, only because I'm a goody two-shoes, do I do things because I don't want to let somebody down or I feel like if I got introduced to somebody that I should do this work because it'd be polite. That's my biggest problem, really, is just being a bit too British about things. You know, being like, oh, absolutely, I'd love to help you. How can I, you know? <laughs> and meanwhile, you're thinking, what have I done? Yeah, and I, I do that a lot, but at, sometimes that can put me in, in bad places, but sometimes it can be really fun too. We are really lucky as a team, because, I mean, I've talked a lot about myself because I'm here, but so much of everything that I do and have done for like the last four and a half, five years since I started the studio has been with a group of people. How many people do you have? Twelve now. That's a big staff. Yeah. That's a lot of payroll. Yeah. It's grown quite quickly in the last six months. And do you feel that you're able to sort of keep the Kate Morose type culture that you're... Oh, yeah. It's growing all the time. And what's so exciting is that people are contributing. So, like, um, I had a, an internship from Hyper Island. Um, two students came from Hyper in Sweden to... They actually invited me to talk at their their school, so I went to Sweden and I did some workshops there. And then I got on so well with them that I invited them to come and do some time with us in in London. And they came, and um, they both worked. They worked with me for three months, and then I couldn't let them go. So they basically just joined the team. But during that process, um, Leo, who works with me, they wrote a PDF about their experience for their teachers. And when I was reading it, it said, like, we, it would be really nice if we had a, a coffee break in the afternoon because it can get a bit intense. And in Sweden, you have fika, where you, like, have relax and, and, like, talk and let go for a minute. So we now have fika at work. So, like, we've brought it into our life. And, like, every day at 4.30, we have a 20-minute to half an hour moment where everyone just steps away and has a minute to, like, Relax, I guess. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, you you were asked about what kind of advice you would give to young people starting out, and this is what you say. It would be, don't listen to the man, but take this point on board. Talk to your peers and take them just as seriously as your teachers, and most importantly, don't be afraid of approaching people and offering your services. You won't get any work waiting around for the phone to ring. It's about making that phone call yourself. Oh yeah, that's And I tell this true. to all my students, I have students in the, in the audience, so I, they're nodding their heads vigorously. If you want something, you have to ask, you have to try to take it yeah. and, and make it for yourself. That's why I called the book that awful title. Make your own luck. Why yeah. do you think it's an awful title? Because it's like the name of about 5,000 other self-help books. <laughs> it's oh. not a very original name. And like, it doesn't really like, 
But it is a really an it is a really original book because it's Thank straightforward. You. It is you say what you mean, you mean what you say. Everything you say has a purpose, and it's all about really being good in the world. Yeah, I mean, I really think that in a very capitalist, um, patriarchal world that we're in, even more so than any other time, um, that you have to listen to your inner voice and not just listen to what you're told and you need to seek information around you not just listening to what someone's telling you from up there and that's so important um, and that's kind of why I wanted to write the, the book because so many people reached out to me for advice and it's hard to tell people everyone everything so that's why you write books right to tell people things a lot of people the same thing at once <laughs> it's really simple um so yeah uh that's why I wrote the book um and then I had to put work in it for it to sell yeah <laughs> if it was just words I don't think I would have got a book deal but yeah I understand that one of your ambitions for the future is to make an action movie. I think that, that has sailed, unfortunately. You don't want to do that anymore? No, I, I'm over live action. Um, <laughs> I'm much, maybe like a cartoon action movie. I don't know, I really just wanted to cast Bruce Willis in something so we could hang out. And that's, that's the truth. Um, I wanted to, I don't know, I love action movies, so I guess, I guess that was a, a flash in the pan. I have a lot of those. Flash in the pan. Yeah. What are your current ambitions for the future? Um, I'm trying to further my my studio, and I'm trying to do that whilst focusing on well-being and making sure that people have what they need. And then I'm also really just getting stuck in to all of the issues that we have in our industry and trying to change them. I'm sure everyone here understands what those problems are it's systemic across many many industries and structures so that's kind of like in a small way I'm just trying to do what I can in the way that I can do it and a lot of that is just by doing and talking about it like being at places like this my last question is a pretty simple one what would you like to be better at patience Fair enough. I know that's not grammatically correct is it I'd like to Sounds be more. To me. I'd like to be more patient. Um, I'm very impatient, and I don't think that's a very good trait. It's got me far, but I wouldn't say it's it's a. I would say it's quite an annoying thing to be impatient. It yeah. sounds to me that you were probably born that way. Yes, <laughs> in the words of Lady Gaga. Always good to Please end say with it. a Lady Gaga quote. <laughs> yes. I don't know about you, but yeah, no, can't really top that. No, I, I think um, I think what I've realised is that it's important to be your your true, authentic self. And sometimes it takes people longer to get there than others. But grab onto it and ride it because you ain't got any other self to be other than who you really are. And I did not listen to all those people who said to me, you couldn't be a gender non-conforming weirdo with a shaved head and tattoos and make it in an industry. You know, whatever. Whatever something somebody said to me that I couldn't do, I just was like, nah, don't care. You know, and, and I don't necessarily think that everyone has the facilities to block that out. So I like to try and come to things like this and talk to people to make them realize that they can or 
talk to them and be like high-fiving them because they did. One of those two things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being on the Night Matters. Oh. It has just been extraordinary to talk with you. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody. Thank you, Shutterstock. Thank you, DNA. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie slash millman. That's d.rip slash debbie Dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.